welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by the Ocean Race. This week, it's the turn of Richard Mason, a sailor who's already had a big impact on the race and now taking a role in the race management team, somebody that's helping to shape the future direction of this round-the-world fully crewed challenge. Richard Mason has been involved with every edition of the race since 2001, six in total, four as sailor, before then becoming a team manager or shore manager for Team SCA, then joining the race management team for the 2017-18 edition. Now, some of those campaigns were notable for breaking trends, like Team SCA and an all-female crew, but some of them were, were raced at a time where it was still possible to get dangerously close to the ice. Two in the Volvo 60s, two in the Volvo 70s, and you start to appreciate why Richard is such a great source for those stories from the race's past. And, of course, now the direction for the race's future. So, um, Richard, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for giving up your afternoon. And I want to get an update. But before you tell me about all things to do with the Ocean Race in 2022, or indeed the Ocean Race Europe 2021, I want to learn a little bit more about you as a sailor. In all the archive footage that I've seen of you doing the race, you're always smiling. You always look like you're enjoying it. But... I wonder if you can take us all the way back to the beginning, because there must have been a time, like all of us, where you're a little bit wet behind the ears. You're jumping on board the boat. You're jumping into the race for the first time. And maybe a lack of experience is being compensated by overconfidence. And I, I wonder, do you remember the first time that the race, the boats, the, the challenge knocked your ego down a couple of pegs and told you, do you know what? This is going to be hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, it keeps your ego and check this race over and over again. I think the first time you just had no idea how much trouble you got yourself into. You know, everything was an adventure. The, the biggest challenge was to just try and sail around the world in the first place and not let your team down. Like you just wanted to do your role as well as you could. You had no idea what was coming, but you didn't want to be the wink link. So, you know, underneath it all, you were, you were pretty nervous the whole time. I'd say it was around about my third race where I got the ego lesson, you know, where you thought, you know, you know what it was going to take. You were really out there to win. And uh, that was all sort of where you really adjusted from being driven so much by the win where it became more about how you won and the humanistic side of the race and what you were really involved in. You know, it was around about edition three that um, you know, something kicked in there. You talk about your role and, and, and doing it so much that the boat gets all the way round. We always hear and we always focus on main trim, four deck navigator but i wonder with somebody who's got the personality that you have and you do seem to be somebody that provides energy for your team were you aware fairly early on that actually one of your strongest attributes and one of the things that people talk about when they mention you is that you give people a little bit of a boost maybe when they need it was that something you consciously decided to do no it's nothing you consciously decide to do, but you you sort of realise. I mean, I, I was. It took me a, a long time before I got anywhere near the traveller. You know, my life lived in the middle of the boat. You know, I was the I, I was the pit guy, and and um, you know, sort of pit slash 
the young fella that um, as the age, as the changes would get worse and more dangerous, the age would come forward from the trailer and quite happily let the halyard down while you went up there and uh, wrestled the canvas next to uh, the bowman who was usually your best mate. So, so it, it was it was nothing you consciously do, but you, you realise that you know you had a lot to give. And I think in this race we had a, we have a bit of a saying that you, know, you get to you get to know your crew members better than you'll ever know your own wife because you you, you see people at their absolute best and their their absolute worst. Yeah, and, and sometimes you just got to put a hand out and pick them up. But um, there'll be other times where someone passes you a cup of coffee and pick you, you know, picks you up. You know, it, it has its highs, it has its lows, but um, it's it's all about sort of getting the people around you to keep moving in that direction. And and generally, you know, uh, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble in this race. And I've certainly ended up in some ridiculous situations where. I mean, all you can really do is, is laugh and have a look at the humorous side of it and, and to see if you can fight your way out of it, which generally you do. But, um, yeah, um, there's certainly times where you need to apply a bit of humor because if you if you didn't anything else, you might realize just how much trouble you were in. <laughs> well, okay, so so that brings me to something that, that I wanted to ask you because um, all the way back when we started this interview series, I spoke to Ken Reed and he was talking about... Um, and this is where I've got to remember it right, but I, I think it was Ericsson. I think that was the one that he stepped on first of all. And he, and he was, was saying, one, yeah. yeah, and he was saying sort of getting used to the bow and the noise and everything. And he was saying, oh, it's very jarring. So I turned to Rich Mason and I said, oh, you know, is everything all right? And your answer was complete commitment that everything was fine. But he knew at the time that's that's just you're just telling me what I want to hear. You don't, you know, you you don't really sort of know. I mean, how much of that was you in those situations not not allowing yourself to really let those fears come to the top? You know. Oh, I was absolutely telling him what he needed to hear because <laughs> we were in a little bit of shit. <laughs> we uh, we were having uh, considerable structural issues with the boat and. Um, uh, at that particular point, movie star had just sunk. I don't know if you remember, but um, and it was a problem that was notorious for that particular design of boat that the keel bearings had a bit of a habit of breaking loose, and um, you know, that sort of led to some major. And we had exactly the same design boat, um, but we'd probably just done a better job of managing uh, that fault in the boat as we developed with the race. But uh, you know, I was keeping a, a pretty a pretty clear eye on that and some other uh, other structural things around the boat that I knew in some pretty willy weather. It, uh, it was um, fresh to frightening that. And, uh, you know, you're always on the edge on those boats. So, you know, they were, you put them to sort of, they would break and you'd fix it and then it became just strong enough. They were never sort of bulletproof and super strong. Um, um, so yeah, definitely with that one, I, he had a baptism of fire on that uh, on that leg. We we had um, the unfortunate incident with Hans Horowitz, and then we, as we came into the approaches of uh, Bay of and into the English Channel, we um, we picked up some some pretty fresh weather. So uh, by the time we all got on the dock there, we 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 had a fair amount of boat building lying ahead of us to finish the to finish the race. And that was the first edition of those boats. So, um, you know, it was, it was a clean sheet of paper for everybody. When you look back on that, is, is it something that you wish, I ne- you know, I, I wish we could completely eliminate that 
part of the race, um, looking after the equipment in that way and that sort of challenge? Or is it something that you look at and you think, no, that's that's part of it. And when you do, like you were saying, you do manage to manage it well, possibly with a little bit of luck, but you manage it well and you get over those problems. Does that just make finishing all the more sweeter? Well, those are the things that define you in this race. You know, it's, it's, it's getting over those hurdles, and it's not if they'll happen, they will. You know, you're always pushing the envelope in one way or another. You know, we, we went from pushing the design envelope with the 70s very hard to pushing the, envelope, the human envelope incredibly hard in the, um, in the 65, you know, sort of one design boat era. You know, you see photos of Bauer going around Cape Horn with, uh, you know, I'm sure some guys loved it. I mean, there were no sails left in the inventory to stick up there heading and yeah, you, know, you just look at it going, my God, that master's taking some load, you know. So it, it's it's kind of what it's all about, and and really in this in this whole race, it's overcoming those moments which allow you to win. And the things you do look back at, you know, you have your time on the podium, but it's very seldom you look at you know four or five editions of this race, and you have particular wins in your mind. It's more particular situations you got a result out of that and you did something incredible with a group of people under very difficult circumstances you know I, I look back at my career in Sanya which was possibly sportively the worst you know we were tailing Charlie the whole time but there was an atmosphere in that team of just never ever giving up and uh, and we you know unit the way the team worked was amazing you know it was, it was a really fantastic team to be a part of maybe because the pressure and the expectations weren't there and, and we were just trying to cause trouble the whole which we did most of the time. <laughs> there you go. Another great story that we're going to have to dig into at one point. Um, but but does that happen accidentally? You know, when you say that teamwork and that cohesion and that everybody lifting each other up, does that happen by accident or is it something that you have to build and you have to design into the team? Yeah, you do, you know, and it's, it is built into the team because of the kind of people and characters it takes to get around the world. You know, they need to be people that just don't take no for an answer. But sometimes you can't all be like that, you know, it, and it, at different times it takes different people. You know, when you're on the water, it's, it's the skipper. You might be, you know, in a medical situation with uh, some crew member, injured and it's actually you know the skipper has to take secondary role the person who's the medic on board calls the shots and works with the navigator but you get through the situation and you hand it back to the skipper or you break the boat and you end up in a possible part of the world where you've got to fix it and you're totally in the hands of your shore manager and, and you do everything that it takes to take command from him and get the team or her and get in the race so but it is just the whole dynamic of the the team and uh, and that's what the beauty of this race is about. You know, at the end of the day, it's just this massive human challenge, melting pot of uh, human characters and nature. And I mean, it's it's never all roses either. You know, I've I've seen winch handles flying around the deck, and, and I know there's some sailors out there that are a pretty good shot with a winch handle. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, equally, they'll both be in the boat 
are having a beer at the end of the end of the race, but you go through a lot together. And um, but maybe it's also the fact you just can't get off. You don't have an option. You've got to solve it. Have you ever had to, you know, mentioning no names and maybe in the early stages of the race, but have you ever <laughs> have you ever had to sort of put your arm around anybody and say, I think you should think carefully about whether you really want to do this race. Have you ever seen warning signs that somebody might be approaching their limit? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, yeah. There's plenty of, you know, you, you, um, it's a bit of a classic that, you know, it's, a, it's hierarchical as a business. You know, you'll have people who are aspiring to be skippers or, um, watch captains for the, for the title. You know, I want to be the watch captain. I've just come America's Cup, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm pretty bloody handy out there, and and I'll be the watch captain, or I'm not coming. And um, after you've done this race a few times, you see, you know, you think, well, just be careful what you're wishing for, because if you want to have the, you know, you know, the life of others on your hands and that responsibility at three o'clock in the morning in the Southern Ocean, if you make a mistake, you're wearing it. You know, you you, you want to be pretty prepared for. It. And I've, I've seen guys learn that the hard way. And actually asked to step away from those roles afterwards, and and you know have it in a steadier hand. Uh, so quite interesting, you know the 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 ocean race and the and the and the crews and the characters in it. You you can you can you can talk about how good you are till the cows come home, but the proof will always come out in this race. So you know you you, you there are situations where you know you see people come and go the time, and generally. The team that will win the race is the one that's had the least number of changes. The one that's yep. stuck together from the beginning. And you 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 you're pretty careful about getting the right mix of people on the boat. You can't all be skippers. You know, if you got ten of the world's best skippers and stuck them on the same boat and thought, I have got the best boat in the world, you wouldn't get it off the dock because no one could agree as to who was going to tie the dock lines because they'd all want to steer. <laughs> you know, it takes it takes a lot of different characters and people to make this work. It, it, you know what? Bauer Becking said exactly the same thing when I was interviewing him. And I, and I said, you know, if you don't manage to get a team for the next edition, would you join somebody else's? And he said, maybe for a leg. But it wouldn't work with me being on a, on a team, not being skipper. He said, he, he's, it's just not a role that he could kind of fit into. So I, it's, a, it's a really interesting sort of point. So let's, let me honest. ask... Yeah, yeah, very, yeah, very honest, very honest. Yeah, that's um, that, and and that's very important with this race too. You've always got to be honest with yourself, and sometimes there is a time too that you need to step off. You know, I've faced a couple of times where you you're carrying an injury, you don't want to give up, um, you don't tell people about the injury. Generally, it can get too bad, and then you get forced to, you know, then you actually have to step, but you have to do it because. There's no point in saying halfway the leg because you know you're so driven. You want to win the round the world race, or you know it's up to you. Sometimes to do the best thing for the team, you actually have to bench yourself, and that's a that's a tricky thing too. Like, as yeah, you, you can't get out there and then go. Oh, by the way, guys, uh, you know my elbows are bad and I can't actually do the job that I'm supposed to be doing. That you just don't do that. Is this then a good time to ask you about? Rob, and I'm not too sure how to pronounce his surname, but I'm going to go for Rob Hainer, the skipper from Asa Abloy on leg one, who then Roy stepped Heiner. off. Yeah, Rahina, apologies. And, I, and I'm not sure about the sort of, you know, the ins and outs there. And I'm sure with all these sorts of things, there are stories that 
you know, quite happily stay within within the, the, the team. But I'm just wondering, like you say, there's points where you have to be maybe a bit honest and that can come from either side and there's difficult conversations, everything. So from you as a crew member, what's it like when, for whatever reason, there has to be a bit of a change, there has to be a little bit of a, a rejig and... Um, you, you know, people's opinion, you know, if it, I can just imagine pe- nerve endings feel a bit frayed. What What are those moments like? Oh, they're pretty brutal. I mean, um, you know, Roy, Royce, Royce was an interesting one. So, you know, Roy was the, um, he's a, a Dutch Olympic um, sailor in the fin. Fantastic guy. Mm. Amazing motivator of, you know, young people. Brilliant sailor. And, um, uh, he skipped he came on board half in the pre the race prior to Arthur Abloy um, to I just, I just remember the name of the boat it was a Dutch entry it will come to me in a second my uh, my trivia is um, as a subsidiary of Brunel actually um, I remember it but he got in that young boat um, it wasn't one of the mainstream designs and he came on board towards the end of the race and racked up some amazing results. Mm. Now Roy is the kind of guy who can take a group of young people and and really mould them together into his style of leadership. And he leads from you know uh in, in his way. And what we had as a team in Arthur Abloy was a bunch of really strong sailors. You know, we had Neil McDonald, Jack Harrington, Clubber Neeloff, uh, Magnus Olsen, uh, Rudiger. So, you know, these were all names in their own right. Yeah. So, so what you really had was the world, you know, one of the best groups of sailors in the world, and all you needed was a great conductor because, you know, so you needed one who wasn't really going to lead through trying to over, you know, sort of override, so to speak, or look for the silver bullet. You needed a pretty steady hand and someone who was, who was going to run a, you know, he was going to get the best out of his players because he had the best players in the world, if you see what I mean. So this, that was a classic case of the right leader for the right team. Now, Neil McDonald raised, he, he stepped up to the role in Cape Town and um, he did an amazing job, but that was for that particular team. We had, we had ten nationalities out of twelve crew, and and Neil is just—I mean, if he phoned me up tomorrow and and said, "Mason, we're we're going to sail around the world," I'd pack my bags and go. You know, he's um, he's he's one of the most amazing people to watch uh, drive a yacht in the Southern Ocean. These things that we used to sail back in those days. I remember sitting behind him, and he did just. In his element, it's the most natural thing in the world to be roaring down the front of a wave at 40 knots, you know. And you sort of go, okay, well, that's cool. But, <laughs> um, you know, then Neil went on to Skipper Ericsson one, yeah, you know, and that had a whole bunch of challenges for Neil and um, a different situation, a different team around him. And, um, you know, we had some issues there, you know, as a, there was a leadership change on that boat, and and, and that happens. But, you know, every now and then you get the leader for the right leader for the right group of people. That's our boy. You know, Neil was the right guy for that group, and and you know we always, I mean, we were right on Ilbrook's heels for the last leg to, um, you know, we were in second, but we, you know, it was if we had another leg in the race, we would have been hounding them for first. So 
it, it, it is very unique, and that's something you have to be very careful with when you you do this race. That you know, quite often you'll see skippers don't steer the boats in the import races. Mm. You know, they're not the forty nine a hot shot and you know, around the can sailor. Um, they'll get someone who's good at doing, but they they are the guys that will keep the ship rolling. You know, Shabby is a classic. Yeah. Brilliant leader offshore. He'll put the right guys on the helm and around them, and you know, in there on the grinding or trimming till the cows come. But he will always be there, drive the team along from the underside quietly, pushing away. You know, so it's it's very interesting to see what it takes to win this race. So that's why this is the bit I love most. I can go on about it forever, but it's 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 fantastic the watching the people and the. T- it's really interesting hearing you say that in. Um having heard you say earlier about how so much um, is that kind of hierarchical uh, ego trip of the title of I'm helm, I'm skipper, I'm watch leader. And like you say, there are those people that, you know, some of them are amazing helms and they should be on the helms. And some of them go, no, no, that's, that's not what I bring to this team. I'm going to bring the leadership. You're going to drive. I'm going to, like you say, Xavi Fernandez, I'm just going to, you know, winch the hell out of this sail when it needs to be done. Um, what about those sort of softer moments of leadership and those softer moments of kind of personal stuff that we that we really don't get to see? Because one of the things that I, I always I'm always amazed is um, you know you mentioned you know you know the sailors better than you know your wife, um, and it's that thing of like you know you, my mood in the morning is still not great to get the best out of my family that I live with. On a boat, you know, have did you, do you? How well do you have to work out how people like to be woken up? Is it that sort of thing of like ripping a plaster off? You give them a shake, you go, you got thirty seconds, you got to get on on deck, or is there a softer way to do it? Oh, it's that's. I mean, that there is. Yeah, some of them you've got to chase them out. Some of them you know <laughs> they take forever to get ready, and you need to wake them up forty minutes beforehand. Otherwise, they'll never make it on deck. You know, if the if the conditions aren't too tough, you'll always go down and put the kettle on and and try and get a cup of coffee ready for them before they up. Um, yeah, and you know, I mean, you'll even keep an eye on you. This will sound a bit dodgy, but you know, you keep an eye on some of the crew when they're going for a wee to make sure that their wee's the right colour. Mm. You know, I was a medic on the boat, and there was um, there's been several times where I've you know, it's really, really rough and the guys go go for a wee in, the, in a plastic bucket downstairs and you tend to be going past. I mean, it's, it's a bit how you live. And you see it, and it's brown. You're just like, mate, when was the last time you drank water properly? You can tell that their performance has been going down for a bit and you realise they're not drinking enough. So then you go and dig out all the um, uh, isotopic drinks and you, you, you monitor them and you make sure you give him his water so that you know that uh, he's drinking enough. So, yeah, you, you, you do really get to know the guys and you realise that some guys it gets really rough that, you know, or if it's um, if they're getting really frustrated, you need to talk to them a bit. Or they can get a bit negative, you need to talk to them and drag them off with some other subject for a while, you know, that might have nothing to do with sailing and then bring them back home. So it's, it is, you know, it is a continuous exercise about keeping all the cogs of the team rolling you know if that's done well i mean hell even if it's done poorly it's so difficult for us who are watching the race to notice that those kind of invisible strings that you guys are pulling with each other to constantly be getting the best 
out of the individual. I mean, you know, looking back, do you, do, can you think of anything that people have done for you in those times where people have kind of had your back, been talking to you in a certain way that maybe at the time you didn't realize, but you look back and you go, yeah, that was getting me to a good place so that I could keep being the good sailor that I am. Oh, all the time. And those relationships you develop and hang on to for many years. You know, for me, that guy was Graham. He was our uh, shore manager with Arthur Abloy and you know, in this race and, and uh, races in the past, you know, he, it's quite, it seems strange that, you know, you go from, and then you find yourself in the same, you know, shore managers meetings as someone who, you know, you've looked up to for advice over the years and, and but you still sort of go around the neck and, and you know, if there's something you can't unravel, you can't figure out or, you, know, you get a quick chat to them and, and um, you know, it becomes a little bit more apparent or less so. But, uh, yeah, it's there's an amazing group of people and you run into them all over the world. I mean, it's not just this race that you sail together with them. So it's a unique group of people to um, You have a lot of fun with them, for better or for worse. <laughs> really interesting, though, that you mentioned Shaw Manager um, because I wouldn't have thought that that role off the boat was was maybe maybe, maybe you know, yeah someone yeah so someone that you could lean on but of course you know there are those times where you're like I haven't been with you for a month cooped up in a bunk so actually I can talk to you in a way that well you can fight in them yeah because when you're cooped up alone you know it's it's quite often when you get ashore that you decompress <laughs> when you're on a you know you got you, you got a job to do you're thinking about the next sale change you're mm. You're, you know, you're constantly performance based. It's it's when you get ashore and you look at the result. Maybe you've done well. You know, maybe you haven't done well, and you're you're trying to find why. And and that's normally where the majority of the conflict is in this race. Is it's ashore. That's where the changes happen. And yeah. two or three days into it, you know, and and someone said, well, you know, you guys have had three bad weeks in a row. We need to change something. And you know, at that point, you, you may have reflections, but you're sure how to get them out. But it's quite interesting how you set one of these teams up because one of the key things you can do when you manage and run these teams is make sure that you have a very respected shore-based coach so that when you come in and debrief, the skipper or the navigator or the watch captains that are running the debrief, it's the coach. And he's taking notes and... You know, he can be the good cop, bad cop, and also a support or a constructive critic to Zipper. And that doesn't have to be taken back to sea. So, you know, it's not the skipper's voice the whole time. It's not the person who you might actually have a critique with that is actually running the debrief afterwards. So it allows for a more, you know, it can be very relieving to the skipper um, but uh, also to the greater team. So, you know, that we see that coming into the race more and more that, you know, the likes of Don McDonald and, and these sort of guys that are, dare I say it, you know, they're, they're less interested in maybe sailing around the world, but, um, you know, uh, in terms of doing what the whole race, because you know, these boats are going faster and they're more brutal. And to be honest, you know, you need to be young. You need a young man's or person. I say young man's, but person's body and mind to get around the world but these guys have so much to offer and and how to manage the team overall and keep that team going well this becomes the time then that i need to ask you about when you were shore manager for team sea and were you did you go into it with that sort of 
I know what this role can do for the sailors if it's done well. Were you, were you trying to emulate that, that you saw? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, it was a, I was looking for something to, I mean, at the time I was actually talking to Ian Walker about joining him with Abu Dhabi. One of the what captains. It's a bit of a start, actually. I'd, I'd actually signed the work on a Friday and was about to send it through to Ian. And um, uh, then sort of Richard Brees had phoned me that weekend. And, um, you know, <laughs> usually when he phones like that, you know, you get a phone call at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning and you're a bit like, well, he's not phoning up to say hello. So I was <laughs> feeling a bit cheeky and I was just like, uh, well, what do you want? <laughs> But um, Magnus Olsen had recently passed away. And um, obviously, Magnus and I, we'd sailed around the world three times together and, and living in Sweden, we're very close. And um, there was a bit of a hole in the SCA team that I think that sort of left. And um, they were looking at a, a bit of a restructuring as a way to go forward. And, and they offered me the position to come and work with them as the, as the shore manager. And... I just thought it was the most fantastic opportunity in the world to um, to do something different, and and to you know, I guess you know, work with the girls and and take on some new challenges within the race. It was it was an uncharted territory for me, so to speak. So um, yeah, I loved it. I, I think it was one of the best jobs in the race, actually. Um, just in the last twenty minutes, you, you you've completely realigned my appreciation of the key roles in any team and what the worth is with certain people. And I wonder that if you hadn't had those positive experiences and seen how powerful the shore management side of things can be when you were offered that role with Team SEA, you know, uh, Magnus Olsen steps away as coach. They need somebody, you know, strong and confident on the shore. If you hadn't seen how well it was done, would you have seen that as a, ah, you know, going on the shore? I, I could go around the world again, you know. Did it, did it take seeing it done well for you to appreciate it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I knew it was a, yeah, I was looking for some challenges. Um, I think coming out of the back of Sanya, where I'd realised it wasn't just the winning of doing this race. You know, I've always been driven by winning, but I think um, the combination of sailing on Ericsson 3, and Sanya, when I saw the strengths of the team and how powerful, I mean, certainly was, you know, our shore team just, they dug us out of some trouble in the world, you know, <laughs> as remote parts of the world, they got us back racing. Nothing was a problem. Um, I was, I was, I was very fascinated in that. And, you know, the Eric three, the, the, the shore team, the comeback, you know, we, we speak about the whole time, this epic, leg that they did from uh, China to Rio and past all the boats, but it was actually the shore team. Oh, hang on. It was, hang on. Was, it, was this the leg? Was this the leg that was like 12,000 miles? That's incredible. The was miles, and then we all sailed through hell to get there. You know, we were we roughest seas I've seen in my life. And, and yeah, E3, the bloody thing sank. I had to put my sea boot over the hole in the, in the bow while we bailed it out. But it was the short, the effort there of something that was just logically impossible. We were shipwrecked with a sinking boat attached to a crane on a dock in the middle of the Chinese New Year, 
with all of our equipment in China and Taiwan. Now, Taiwan and China, not great it's at the best of times. Uh, our entire shore team was in China, and uh, we were, you know, in, a, <laughs> in Taiwan, literally with a... I think we ended up replacing the entire bow section of that boat on one side. I think the section of hull that was replaced was uh, was over five metres long. And it was just unbelievable. We're sitting there going, there's just no way. We're going to have to put this thing on a ship and rejoin the race and rear if we're lucky. And two-thirds of the fleet did that. Yeah. But Olsen just would not accept that. And then we started working the problem. And the problem was amazing. You know, the materials to repair it were in Sweden. Those materials were flowing to, I think, the beginnings of Mexico, where they had a, a CNC machine that they fired up and ran the whole weekend to make a mould of that section of the hull. Then they laminated the section of the dash hull in, in Italy, put it in a plane and flew it to Taiwan, Meantime, a team of, I think, 14 boat builders was assembled and flown out to Taiwan. We uh, found a, a yard that was near a coast that built windmill blades that we could get the boat to. If we lifted it out and put a bar on a barge, so we lifted the whole boat out, put it on a barge and shipped it 100 miles down the coast, cut a section of damaged hull out, laminated in the new section and managed to get the boat up to China uh, and they then they did a 45-minute turnaround on the dock to put 40 days' worth of supplies on the boat, and he joined the leg. Now, you know, to be a sailor on that team was something, having been a part of the entire collective of the Ericsson team, it, it took every resource we had, including a tremendous resource from Ericsson themselves, belief in us, and it resulted in... You know, uh, Olsen culminating his career with skippering the boat into Rio with probably the greatest wins ever in the race. And I, you know, there was there was no individual in that effort. It was that was everyone, and it was absolutely something amazing to be a part of. I, Unbelievable. I, and I had to step off the boat that leg because I had the back injury, like you wouldn't believe that that. Uh, so when we got up to Chindao, I had to get off. But yeah, it was um, to be a part of putting that together, and and it was it was phenomenal. And that's what for me, that's what this race was all about. So my views changed a bit after that. I can completely, you, you, yeah, yeah, like I say, you 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 you're you're giving me a totally new perspective on the value of what goes on. For the fan, certainly, behind the scenes. We don't get to see it and we don't get to feel the effect of it in the same way that you guys do as sailors. Um, so, uh, yeah, sorry, I've just got so many thoughts swimming around in my head. I mean, that's, it's, honestly, it's just uh, the, the, the problem with talking to you is that the conversation never ends because I come into this with 10 questions and now I'm coming away with 100. Um, I will try and get myself back on track. Uh, with Team SCA, with with the um, shore manager, there's one thing that I wanted to ask you because that was when I think I first met you, when I was first involved with the race and you were doing some stuff on the commentary side and, and um, uh, helping us out there. And one of the things that you were saying was that 
looking after the boat and they were all one design. So you all got to inspect each other's boats and you all got to come on board and have a little look at them. Uh, and theoretically, they should all be completely the same. You were saying something, and this might have just been one of those stories that you threw out into the ether one afternoon, but that you put occasionally a little bit of Velcro or a little bit of string or a little bit of something that you could do within the rules. You would attach it somewhere. It was utterly meaningless. It wouldn't do anything, but you only put it on there so that when everybody else came on to inspect each other's boats, you were trying to play with their minds a little bit, that they might go, I wonder what that bit of string there does. And of course, you're not going to tell them, but you know, how, <laughs> how much, how much kind of gamesmanship could you do on a, on a one design boat like that? Oh, quite a bit. You know, some of it was a bit of lead pulling, most part, you know, um, but uh, there was a lot, you know, there has been, I guess, back in the days where there was a lot of development going on um, and we head back into that world again with uh, the inclusion of the Amoka class back mm. in the race. You know, there is a fair, <laughs> there is a fair amount of gamemanship going on, you know, uh, people know you're trying something new and um you know you, you'll start rumors on purpose you know you, you'll you'll you know you can tell one person that um oh shit you know we we tried that out that was a complete bloody <laughs> don't tell anyone and then you know you know within three days it'll be a place and the truth was it was actually really quick but um <laughs> you're just trying to buy yourself another few weeks before someone figures out you're onto something so um yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think that's been used in, in motorsports and sailing from from the get go. That's for sure. I know, I know, I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's never going to end. So, with all these experiences then that you've had of learning how much um, goes on in terms of the life of the sailor and all those interactions in terms of the shore side, in terms of managing campaigns and everything, you then find yourself um, involved with the race. I've asked you this before. I've never got a satisfactory answer. What is your position within the race? What is your day-to-day? -day? What is, uh, what are you responsible for? Well, you have to ask Peter Rush, our comms director. <laughs> Last time he introduced me to a large group of people, he said I was a minister with no mandate. <laughs> <laughs> um, my day-to-day my -day is, is working with teams. So I, I I've, I've held several roles in here. I've, I've in the previous race, I was involved very heavily in the operational side. So I started working all the host cities and and um, putting together, you know, sort of the infrastructure that that goes in there. And that sort of expanded into being the COO of the race, which is overseeing all the operational side of it. So that's everything, sort of logistics, people, you know, moving moving the whole thing around. And um, yeah, now with the change of ownership and that we've scaled down and we're looking at a new business model um, with Richard on there, um, my focus is very much um, now with teams. So, uh, so at the moment, I'm working with all the new teams to help them set up, make them understand the budgets, you know, people that, you know, what sort of infrastructure they need and, and how to set themselves up to be able to participate in the race. And, and that's a pretty crucial role, which is you're working with um, potentially the sort of more franchise mocker teams for them to realize it can seem that we're quite scary and very big um but it's, it's actually they've got it all there you know they have the shore teams they have the boats the infrastructure and that they don't actually need a lot more to be able to compete 
in a in a multiple stop. It's like the um, like the ocean race. So um, and I find myself getting more and more involved in the um, commercial side of the race as well. So um, and then my other principal role is, is working with all the crisis management with the race. So when the race is on, um, I work very with uh, Phil Lawrence and between the two of us we, we run the crisis management program for the race which is um, yeah it's pretty busy at times and uh, as you know <laughs> so um, yeah that requires a lot of planning and preparation and, and, and then when the race is on uh, you need to be on your toes most of the time so uh, it's certainly challenging but I, I, I think I can honestly say working in the organisation is um, it's one of the toughest jobs I've ever had and that's been involved this race because uh with a team, you're driven to a, you know, it has a time period. It has a start and a beginning and a, and a result, you know, either good or bad. Um, but you're driven to one, towards one point and, you, and you've got plenty of other people to fight against. But when you work in the race organisation, there's, there's no beginning or end. And as you finish it, you know, halfway through the race you're delivering, you're already planning the next one. Mm. And, and you have so many stakeholders. You have the teams, you have the sponsors, you have the cities, you have telecommunications, you have the sailors themselves, uh, logistics companies. So, you know, you're really managing a lot of risk and a lot of people that are trying to leverage their position the whole time. So sometimes it can be a, 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 <laughs> a pretty tricky role. So, yeah, I, I think probably I, I wear a lot of hats. <laughs> and, 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 and like you say, I'm sure all of those decisions, all of those hats need to be balanced and you can't always do one thing because there's all these sort of other things that are going to be, get affected by it. With that in mind, is there anything that you wish you could go back to the young Richard Mason and sort of when when you're there on your first boat and you're complaining, oh, why does the management make us do this or why can't the race do that? Is there anything that you go, look, now I'm behind the curtain, I can tell you, I can see why you have to do it like this or it's not that easy. I'm sure it's a dose of reality. Sure. Uh, once I really got my head around what, what the, how difficult the, the running the race side was, I was like, why on earth would you do this? It's bloody hard, <laughs> you know? Um but uh, yeah, no, very, very definitely. But it's also, you know, making sure that the teams and your stakeholders realise that we're actually the facilitators. We're, we're the, you know, we're, we're the spider in the web, and and we very much are on their team. And it, it it really highlights how important communication is. You know, there may be something that happens with a team that doesn't. That, that we can't do everything for them or something doesn't, you know, you can't do a certain leg of the race and they might just go, it's ridiculous, um, you know, why, why are we going there? And they see it from their perspective. But once you explain to them that ships don't go that fast <laughs> and you can't actually get the race village up in time or... Um, the, the financial risk that's involved in pulling something like that off, they just go, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, okay, all right. Well, I, well, that's fine then. And, you know, 45 minutes earlier, they were using all sorts of names to describe your personality. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it can be quite interesting, but, you know, it's trust. It all comes down to trust. And it's a, it's a beast of a thing to try and pull off. You, you, know, you see what's happening with the America's Cup at the moment and that's one event in one geographical location sure. we have nine yeah 
and across about eight different cultures, you know, different countries with different resources and different communication. So, you know, it's, um, I, I think really, you know, we're a bit more of a United Nations than anything else. You know, we, we've got a, we have a lot to cover off in our management meetings, but that's what makes it fun. I, I think the biggest lesson that I got uh, was in the last edition and, you know, there was a lot of talk about the course going to something quite pure and quite historical, which it did, you know, and, it, and we featured a lot more of the Southern Ocean, but there was all this thing about why can't you just make it four legs and everything. And I believe it was Phil Lawrence uh, who pointed out to me that, well, the boats are so much quicker now that you're chasing seasons and 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 I, I I think I've said this before, and I just want to make sure I get it absolutely right. But in the 2014-15 edition, when the boats were coming up into Newport, we were almost the boats were almost so quick that if they'd arrived, I think it was two weeks or one week earlier, the river would have been frozen. frozen. So you wouldn't have been able to get in. And that for me was a factor that I just never would have thought about. That actually you're going so fast, you have to let the season go by before you can come back up again. We're about to ask them to break out the hairdryers. You know, it was, uh, <laughs> it, it was not looking good, you know. And that's one of the biggest constraints in the race course. And, and strangely enough, in this last edition, um, you know, we, we had Cardiff in there. Mm. And uh, there's a little bit of tide in Cardiff. A little bit, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So one of the biggest constraints of putting the race, the whole race course around together was that you could only be in Cardiff for that end in that month. Cool. Because so then it would just get too shallow. From there because, you know, otherwise it's going to be dry, so you just can't go there. And then that affects when you get into Newport and you've got to make sure people are around Cape Horn, but they can't come around too late. So, you know, there's a lot of geographical and well, obviously climate, but you know constraints before you start going, okay, now we've got all these cities. Can we actually ship this? You know, do the shipping work and trucking and, you know, the shipping and, and just prior to the last race, we had a massive global shipping crisis. Mm. So, you know, it's not like we can pull out the, the shipping schedule four years out and go, okay, we can ship this, that's fine. Uh, um, it can be that still trying to lock down the shipping routes uh, as the race is starting. And that's quite terrifying because you imagine the uh, constraints on us if we can't deliver a race because it's sitting on a ship in the Middle East somewhere and didn't make it to where it had to. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's so many factors in this. Yeah, there would be no sympathetic fans in in, in that scenario. <laughs> yeah, bless them. So, so let's let's let the fans know where we are then, because um, you know, with all the uncertainty, like you say, and you know, it all swirls around in your head, and this is why you're doing your job and I'm doing mine. Um, but obviously, for the next edition, we've had uh, a postponement for a year, but also we've had this kind of roadmap laid out in terms of the ten year next, plan, yeah, yeah, the ten year, the ten year plan. So, so where are we? Give us that sort of bullet point. Um, if you've just joined the ocean race or indeed if you've had your head in the sand or other things to worry about, what does it look like now? When are we going to next be able to cheer for the boats? Well, we're hoping as early as next year. So the postponement's in place and that at this stage is a copy-cut paste year. And that was purely related to the global situation of COVID, which sure. 
you know, thank God we delayed it because, um, you know, we certainly are not living in a normal world uh, five months later from when we, we started discussing the delay. Well, what we have realised is that, you know, that created a gap and we needed to see if we could find something to fill the gap. So we've, we've created an, um, the, um, the Ocean Race Europe and um, working that event up at the moment and it's been really well, uh, the response to it has been fantastic, both from the city standpoint and um, from a team standpoint. So the no race is out. Um, the, the main race, it'll start on the west coast of France, we think, at this stage, and then go um, probably via Cash Guys and then into the Med. It's going to be run over sort of four to five weeks and the three to four day legs with a stopover in, in each city of two to three days. Sprint sailing for the Amoka class and the BO65s. And at the moment, um, we could have as many as six BO65s. Um, we, there are eight in the world. Um, the seventh boat is in Mexico at the moment, and the eighth is with Bianca and Trey down in, in New Zealand. Now, obviously, a bit difficult for them to bring it up. But uh, I spoke to the Mexicans last week, and they, they're working very hard to potentially bring the boat back over to Europe to do the Europe race. And um, response from actually looking at my notes while I was speaking to you, we, we discussed this with Amoka yesterday, but they did a survey with the boats and, and you know, they said that there's 14 boats that are interested and, you know, maybe we see somewhere between eight and ten of those boats entered. So, yeah, we, we could have a really good race going on next year. It'll be a nice little punchy taste of the race. Yeah, but, but I mean, that's a big marina. <laughs> six sixty fives, eight sixties. I mean, that's a that's a big crowd right there. Well, yeah, we we realise that. <laughs> we're we're busy trying to string it together, but you know, obviously, we're also trying to COVID proof it a bit as well. Sure. Um, that's why it's Europe continent. Um, yeah, we're closely monitoring what's happening in Europe. Um, we certainly hope that by spring next year, you know, all the medical that we're getting is telling us that, you know, cross our fingers, the vaccine will be in play then, and um, we should be through the worst of it. The numbers are coming up as we go into autumn, but that's been predicted and as, you know, as expected. Um, but we certainly hope that, you know, when we can be a part of starting next year's summer season with uh, you know, bringing something fantastic for, for the sailors and for the fans alike to get their teeth through and, and bring the ocean race to life. And um, and then we'll then we'll run to uh, the main race and and um, in twenty two. And for the main race in twenty two, obviously we had the course announced, and as you say, the postponement. Everything's just lifted, moved, put down. We 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 know how that's going to look. Yeah, well, it wasn't just it wasn't a actually dangerous word that one. <laughs> um, we had nine negotiations to do so you know that's why it took us so long to get the postponement in place mm. and while we were at it we sort of realized that was an opportunity to build a 10-year plan um and it, quite incredible so with all of those cities not one dropped out and and the way the contracts work you know really they had to get out of jail for free card you know if they that the COVID situation was putting too much pressure on them as a city and uncertainty for events. And, you know, they, they had every right to say, you know, thank you very much, but declined, not one. 
So there was a, a tremendous amount of support for the race going forward. But there probably will be some sort of changes in the running order or or I, I can imagine there will be some minor changes in timing and things as we get close. I mean, the race is still three years away. So, um, you know, you'd expect that. But um, on the whole, it's copy-cut paste, which is, which is fantastic. But it does give us a little bit more time to work on that race and, and get it right. Um, but it also allows us to you know, try and open up the, the taste and the flavour of the ocean race to, um, you know, more boats to um, through the, the Europe race and, and touch a few more boats in Europe. So, um, you know, we, hope, we can hope we can bring a little bit of uh, the ocean race life to uh, liven up uh, some of the cities of Europe in the early part of next year. It'll, it'll be running in the month of June. So, And... and, and- I mean, I'm guessing not, not, not then, not for the Europe tour because you'll have an awful lot going on. But is there a point? When is the point? I should say. Let's be positive. When is the point that you get to sit back, watch the tracker, watch the race unfold? You know, us as the fans, we're there. We can we can be cheering for our favourite boats. We can be following the jury. When, when do you get to sit back? Job well done, and and enjoy what you've what you've built for the next edition and beyond. Pretty much never, because you're always <laughs> under pressure to. Uh, I'm to trying to be positive. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Usually, I, actually, to be honest, I, I think the when you work in the race organisation, the day the race starts, so you know when you start your first offshore leg, is a moment to breathe and say, "Well, here we go." You know, you've got to the to the starting line, and that's the biggest challenge for all these teams is just getting to the starting line. The plan sailing around the world, that's pretty much set. You know, you're not going to be able to change it. Um, you kick the snowball off down the hill and it's just going to get bigger. And, you know, there'll be a few along the way where you, you're going to have to think on your feet and solve mostly operational issues. But, um, uh, yeah, on the whole, that's the one where you sit there and go, Whew, okay, we, we managed to get this bit together. Here we go. Buckle up, you know. Um, let's see if it works. And, and uh, that's the moment. But then... Once the race gets going, well, you're um, you, you, you head into that, as you know. Well, I, I have the easiest and what I would say as well, the best seat in the house. I get to watch all the stresses and strains go past and I get to have the front row view of the action. So unfortunately, I don't know. But thank you very much, Richard, for talking us through it and, and, and making us appreciate just how much is going on behind the scenes, not only in the race management role that you're doing now, but but also everything that you've experienced on the shore and, and as a sailor as well. And um, it is fascinating to hear what a difference it makes. So thank you very much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime.